Well, it is so good to be with all of you on this incredible day that we get to celebrate the wonder of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and all that it has affected and all that it impacts. On occasion, you may have been in a situation like me, whether it's in a board game or a conversation, where somebody might ask you the question, if you could travel back in time to any period in history or to anyone in history, who would you like to meet and what period of time would you like to go back to? Whenever that question comes to me, without hesitation, without second thought, I always know I would like to go back back to the time of Jesus Christ on this planet between his baptism and his resurrection. And I would like to follow that sequence, being an observer of that reality. The reason that comes to me is not because I'm religious or I'm a pastor or I want to be with Jesus, but because I am utterly convinced that the single most exciting time on this planet, the single most exciting life to watch, the most extraordinary life to observe and experience would have been Jesus during those years. To watch that unfold and the discovery that came with that must have been extraordinary to be part of. You see, Jesus walked into a context that was already set up beautifully for his entry. The people of God, the Jewish people, had heard for centuries from God through the prophets that God was coming to rescue them once and for all. God certainly had effected rescue in their lives multiple times throughout their history. And and there was this sequence of sort of the people of God would be rescued of God in some small way. They would love him and worship him. Then they would fade back into their own old ways, run after their idols, do what they wanted to do, find themselves bound and and captivated by some empire or some reality or some horror, and then God would rescue them again, and this cycle went on and on, kind of like our human lives. But God had promised that at some point he was going to come and he was going to send someone, a Messiah, a rescuer, a redeemer, who would come, step into their story, and once and for all, rescue them, restore them to their their full uh, rightness with God and set them on a path of freedom. This is what was prophesied. In fact, among many of the prophecies, one of the most famous that we know uh, is in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was prophesying, and Isaiah 62, listen to the words that he says. This was directly from God to Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon him because the Lord has anointed him to bring good news to the poor. He has sent him to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim freedom to the captives and to open the prison doors of those who are bound by darkness." So there's this incredible sense that one is going to come that you will know by a sequence of realities and everything he does will birth freedom. When Jesus enters into the scene of the baptism, if we could have traveled back there and been there, he walks into baptism and it begins right there. He goes into baptism and a voice from heaven says, this is my son and I'm super happy with him. I sort of quote it differently, but um, that's what he says. And in that moment, God declares that this is the one I've sent so that in case you and I or the people, they don't catch it, he goes, just want to make sure you know this is the Messiah. After the baptism, Jesus goes through the temptation then goes straight into Nazareth, his hometown. That's, that's where he grew up. 
and he walks into the synagogue on the Sabbath. It was commonplace in those towns that especially if a, uh, uh, one of the sons of the town came back and he was now a rabbi, that he would come into the synagogue and whichever reading was presented that day in the synagogue, he would read and then discuss it as the rabbi in town. The readings were sequenced out. The rabbi didn't get to pick them. It would be handed to him. The story tells us in Luke that Jesus came into Nazareth. Now, he went to the synagogue. They asked him to speak. They handed him the scroll for the day. He opened up the scroll, and what do you think that scroll said? It was Isaiah 62. And it says, here's the deal. He has set me up to come and set the captives free. He reads that incredible prophecy. And the story tells us Jesus rolls the scroll up, sets it aside, sits down, looks at everyone in the synagogue and says this to them. This very day in your presence, this has come true. If you wonder whether Jesus was unapologetic about who he was, don't wonder anymore. He was not. If you think he was secretive about being the Messiah, Jesus declared it all over the place through his words and his life. And that's what makes his life so exciting to watch. The people were amazed. Some were not. They thought it was blasphemy. They tried to throw him off a cliff. He walked away. Jesus gets to a beach just a little later on, probably near Capernaum. And he's walking along the beach and he bumps into some guys there. One of them's named Peter. And these guys are fishermen. Peter was a fisherman, well-versed in his trade. If you grew up in Galilee, uh, your mom's dream for you, your grandma's dream for you was that you would become a disciple and then a rabbi. That's what, that's what everybody wanted. Uh, but if you got a normal job like Pete did, fishing, it meant you didn't cut it in rabbinical school. That's the bottom line. Uh, you couldn't memorize enough, you, you couldn't keep up with the pace, or you had a temper problem and you kept getting in trouble, which is probably Pete's story. Because if you follow him, man, that guy is off the charts, right? And so I'm sure in rabbinical school he was in the principal's office all the time, and they're like, you will never be a good disciple, and you will never be a rabbi. And so he's a fisherman. It's a, it's a good trade. It's, it's a little mundane in its dailiness, but it provides, and that's okay. And so he bumps into Peter, and Peter's just spent the entire night fishing. It's been an exhausting night, as the story tells us. And uh, he comes on the shore, and, and Jesus comes up to him, and he goes, Peter, listen, I, w- I, want to, I want to go out one more time. I want you to cast your nets out. And you can almost hear the frustration in Peter's voice, like, look, Rabbi, I, I get it. You're awesome, but um, we fished all night, and, and it's been exhausting, and I wouldn't mind doing that maybe tomorrow. And Jesus goes, no, I just, want, I just want you to do it just this one time. And Peter actually says, you know what? If you ask, I'll do it. No problem. Let's get back in the boats, boys. And they go out. They throw the nets out. And literally, in a miraculous moment, the nets are overrun by fishes, though someone called all the fishies. Come, come, in the nets. And Peter comes off of that, and he, he goes to Jesus, and the story tells us he falls down at Jesus' feet, and he says, depart from me, Rabbi Master, for I am a bad man. I am a sinful man. I have no business being in the presence of you, because Peter started getting what he was seeing. And Jesus looks at Peter, and he goes, Peter, get out. Do not be afraid, my friend. I'm here for you, not the fish. I am going to make a story for you that will blow your mind. You thought you were stuck with this lot in life. Uh, uh, A dropout from rabbinical school, never to be a disciple, only to fish the rest of your life. But wait till you see the story I have for you. You're going to be one of the greatest disciples that ever lived. And Peter's story begins. Now, you know what I wish? I wish I could go back in time and just quickly, secretly strap a few GoPros to Peter. That's what I want to do. A few GoPros, several angles that he doesn't know they're on him, and he just walks because then we could watch what unfolded. Peter was the one 
They got to stand on the boat when the storms were raging. They all thought they were going to die. And Jesus goes, he gets up and he goes, stop it. And the winds stop and the waves stop. And he goes, guys, you got to stop. You got to stop freaking out, really. I mean, I got this. I'm on the boat with you. I control everything. I, I wish I could have been there. Him setting them free from that storm. Uh, Peter was there when Jesus sat on the mount and taught with such authority that the people said, who is this man that teaches with such authority and sets us free? Peter was there when Jesus stood with thousands and said, they're hungry, feed them. Well, we only have a few fish and a couple loaves. You know, don't worry, just, just feed them. I got it covered. And he just, he just sets them free. Wherever Jesus went, it seemed that what he touched just brought life and light and freedom. This is what you saw with Jesus. If we had those GoPros strapped to Peter, we would have walked into town. You would have loved this episode, man. Walked into town. At one point, the disciples are around him. And from a slight distance, there's some cries coming from 10 men. And they, and they shout, help us, help us. And from a distance, you can already tell what's going on. These are lepers. Leprosy was a devastating disease during the time of Jesus. It was very contagious. And when you got it, unless your immune system could kick in and fix it, you were dead. And worse than dead, you were isolated. You could never again uh, go hug your wife or go kiss your children or, or be part of your friends. That you, you were immediately pushed out into a leper colony because they had to protect and isolate so that the disease wouldn't spread. So once you became a leper and that was your lot, you were bound by that disease. And 10 lepers were shouting, please help us. They'd heard about this rabbi. If you were Peter or one of the guys, I bet you were thinking at that moment, okay, what do we do here? If these guys rush the rabbi, uh, what do we do? Because their job was to protect the rabbi at all costs, right? So if lepers are rushing you because they want help, you got to keep the lepers away. But you don't want to touch a leper because then you might die. So do they go, we just step out of the way, let the lepers hit Jesus. He seems powerful. Or do we step in the way and have them hit us and then hope that he can fix it? And while they're wrestling with what's going to happen with the lepers, kind of moving Jesus off to the right to say, don't go near the lepers, Jesus walks right through them and he heads straight for the guys. Now you can imagine the fear they were feeling. Does he even know what he's doing? And he gets to the lepers and he goes, listen, guys, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go out. I want you to wash this way. I want you to do this. I want you to go see the priest. And when you see the priest, you just tell him, you just tell him to check you. Because that's how it worked in those days. If you had leprosy and your immune system happened to overcome, which some do, few, but some, then you could go to the priest and he would examine you and he would declare you healed of leprosy. Those 10 guys go. One of them comes back later in the story. Comes and falls at Jesus' feet. Man, I wish I could have been there. Just weeping and says to Jesus, I, I, I don't know how to thank you. I don't know how to pay you back. I had nothing. I'd lost everything and you gave it back to me with one touch. You've set me free. Thank you. And he, and he walks off. See, if we were privy to these stories, we would have walked into the town when a young, rich ruler came out to the rabbi Jesus. This was very common as well. Uh, the ruler of a town might have come out and the, the famous rabbi's coming through town and you touch base with the rabbi and you say, hey, um, I, I, you know, what, what do I need to do to be a good ruler, a, a good guy, a, a, a good, a good uh, son of God, a good person following God? And then the rabbi would tell you, do these things, and then you would, you would say, done. And then the rabbi would go, well done, you're a great young ruler. You rule well in this town. And it would be a political move across the board, rabbi to ruler, ruler to rabbi. This young ruler comes to Jesus and he goes, what do I need to do to be saved, to be free? Jesus says to him, well, you need to fulfill the whole law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, the whole thing. So the young, young ruler goes, check on that. Done. I have been in synagogue every single Sabbath, et cetera, et cetera. And as though Jesus, understanding the naivety of this young man, as we are so often naive ourselves, says to him, okay, okay. 
Let me take it a step further so maybe I can explain to you what I'm talking about. Take everything you have, give it to the poor, and you will be free. See, Jesus had this masterful way of gently exposing the idols that ruled our hearts. And the story says the young man went away heartbroken and sad because he realized, I can't let go of that. That's my security, my safety, my, my, my fallback. You can't ask me to give that up. And revealed in him was where he was bound and Jesus is inviting him into freedom. Let it go. Follow me. You will see life. We would have been there at a well in Samaria. They were traveling through Samaria. It's a, it's a bad place. Jews don't travel through Samaria because it's dirty. But Jesus went to dirty places to make them clean, to hard places to make them beautiful. So he's walking through Samaria. The disciples have gone into town to find some food. He's sitting at a well resting, and a woman comes to the well. She's coming to draw water when nobody else is there. We don't know this until after Jesus engages her, but this woman had made a mess of her life. Uh, she had, had multiple husbands, and she was living with a fifth guy now. So lots of men in her life, and she was the scourge of the town. She lived in the shadows because her life was such a mess that if she came to the well when anybody else was there, they wouldn't want to be around her, and they would point fingers and go, oh my gosh, that's the woman with the five guys. And so she came alone, she came in the quiet, she came in the shadows, and she knew that this was her life. Do you think she grew up thinking to herself as a young lady, I got a great plan for my life. I'm going to move through my first marriage like it's a cakewalk, get to the second one, divert to the third, marry my fourth, live with the fifth guy. I'm going to become the scourge of the town, live in the shadows, and it's going to be awesome. Do you think that's how she grew up? No, no, she had dreams like you and I. But her life unfolded badly, and I can't imagine the circumstances that got her there, but there she stands. And when you're there, you know you're stuck there forever. This is who you are. This is what defines your identity. I am the woman with five men, and I am always going to live in the shadows. Jesus steps into her life. Can you imagine her shock when she realizes there's a guy sitting on the rock? He's a Jew, and he's a rabbi. I mean, judgment is guaranteed, except that Jesus looks at her and says, you have no idea who you've just encountered, but I'm going to show you. And in one conversation, he so utterly sets her free from what she thought would be her lot in life that she goes to the town, tells everyone the Messiah has come, and she is overjoyed, out of the shadows, and free to live in the light again. And yet, Jesus demanded nothing from her, only to say, when you encounter me, you encounter freedom. There was a young guy. Well, maybe he wasn't so young, actually. Maybe he was older. We don't know. But we know that he lived in Jericho. Jericho was a big city. It was the tax center of Israel. It was an entryway into Israel. So lots of the taxes got paid there. It, it had the headquarters for taxation there. And so there was a man in Jericho that had the distinguished only title that the scripture gives to this one man. Not just the tax collector, but the chief of the tax collectors. Tax collectors were hated by the Jews because they were the people that had sold their soul to Rome. They had signed uh, to Rome their willingness to collect taxes from their own people to give to Rome so that they could get some of the money and become wealthy. It was a way of becoming wealthy. And they became the, the most betrayal, uh, the, the people that most betrayed Israel because they were literally taking from their own people to give to their enemy. They were terribly hated. And if you were the chief of the tax collectors, man, that was a big deal. And he lived in Jericho. And on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus comes through Jericho and he's coming, at this point, it's late in his three years, and there's a big crowd, and he's very well known. Everybody thinks he's the Messiah. And Zacchaeus, who is a Jew, just wants to catch a glimpse of him. He knows he's got no shot at ever engaging with the rabbi, knowing who he is. Everyone in town knows who Zacchaeus is. 
But Jesus walks by him and stops and says, Zacchaeus, you and I have a conversation we need to have. He didn't even know Zacchaeus. Or at least Zacchaeus didn't think he did. Goes with Zacchaeus to his house. People are whispering in the crowd. The GoPros pick it up. Does he know who he is? Does he know who he is? If he knew, he wouldn't be hanging out with that scourge. Zacchaeus was lauded to always be hated. He goes into his house, and if you and I could crawl up to the window for just a moment, just peek in and listen to the conversation, we would see something extraordinary. In a single conversation, one conversation, Jesus looks at Zacchaeus and says, you thought this was how you were going to live? I'm going to give you a do-over right now. You get to wipe all of that out. You get, to, you get to walk away from this clean, and you get to go free. He demanded nothing from him. He just said, I'm here to set you free. Zacchaeus, in his freedom, walked out of that door, went to pay back everybody he ever owed a dime to, and he must have become one of the most loved men in that city. Zacchaeus thought he knew who he would become, but he had no idea. Do you think the woman at the well, do you think Zacchaeus grew up thinking to themselves, someday I'm going to be so bound by my mess that I'm going to think that's who I'm going to be for the rest of my life, and I'm going to encounter Jesus, the Messiah, and he's going to set me free in such wonderful, incredible magnitude that from then on my story is going to be written into the annuals of Scripture, and for centuries, no millennia, people will be inspired by my story of freedom. Do you think they ever thought that? No, they couldn't have thought that. In their darkest times, they would never have imagined that. And yet, that's what Jesus did. So you can imagine the excitement of the people when Jesus enters into Jerusalem. It's the week of the Passover. They know the prophecies now. They have watched him demonstrate that he not only speaks of freedom, but he makes freedom true. Human story after human story after human story. He's risen the dead. He has, he has healed the blind. He has made the lame walk. He has touched the lives of people. He has redirected their entire destinies. And this is what the Messiah does. And he's coming into Jerusalem on Passover week to enter into the space where he will now overthrow the occupier, Rome itself. Oh, they must have been excited. And remember, though many had come before Jesus to say they were going to overthrow Rome, they would be squashed by Rome, crucified and killed. But every time Jesus was arrested or somebody came for him, it seemed like he just diverted around. I mean, you read the stories. It's like, it was like supernatural. Nobody could touch this guy. So they knew they were safe. They come into Jerusalem. They have a, an incredible entry, worshiping him like crazy. The, the religious powerful want to do something about it, but they can't. They have a meal with Jesus, the disciples, and that very morning, very early, while it was still dark, they headed out to a garden to go pray. Nothing unusual, nothing out of the ordinary. Anticipation building. And a bunch of soldiers show up with a mob, with the religious powerful, and they take Jesus and arrest him. Peter pulls the sword, chops an ear off, Jesus goes, sit still. And it's as though Jesus gives himself over to this mob, and the disciples are confused, and ten of them go hide, well, nine of them at the time, and, and two follow, Peter and John. So our GoPros go with Peter. And we get into the courtyard. And the high priest is talking to the crowd, and the crowd is on fire, and they're demanding his death, his crucifixion. 
which ironically is our hope, isn't it? Because if you're going to crucify a guy, you're going you're to have to get Pontius Pilate's permission. And Pontius Pilate has to give it because otherwise it's a political mess and it gets bad in the city. Pontius Pilate was the leader of the Roman part of Jerusalem and he was the last authority on things like the death sentence. And so there was hope that if they were to go to Pontius Pilate outside of the religious mess and politics they were in, Pontius Pilate would see through this mess and he would go, what on earth accusation are you bringing? Maybe he'll have Jesus beaten and send them off and this is God's escape from this horrible scenario. In the meantime, God had spoken to Pontius Pilate's wife and said to her, tell Pontius Pilate not to mess with this guy. So Pontius Pilate was already led to let him go. This is a great story. This is how Jesus escapes. We find ourselves at that very stage. Pontius Pilate on the stage, and Pontius Pilate was brilliant. So he comes up with a scenario that he can literally fix all of it politically. It's a political strategy that was brilliant. On the Passover, there was a tradition that Pontius Pilate would release a prisoner from death row. So what Pontius Pilate does is he doesn't line up 10 prisoners and give them a choice. He says this to them, I tell you what, I will release to you one prisoner from death row. You wanted this guy on death row. I can't see why, but let's say he is. I will bring another prisoner onto the stage and you pick one. And he brings a man named Barabbas to the stage. Barabbas is a bad dude. Listen, Barabbas is the guy that if he gets released from prison, you hide your kids. Just saying, you hide them. You don't let them out on the streets until they catch Barabbas again. He is a murderer, he's a thug, he's a horrible man, he's violent and he's angry. And so there's, it's a no-brainer. Even if you don't want Jesus free, you still pick Jesus over Barabbas. And in that miracle, in that moment where we see how God is orchestrating the release of Jesus so that Barabbas would be condemned, a story unfolds that at face value seems like the beginning of the unraveling of all things and yet it is a story that Jesus allows to show us once and for all why he came and what he came to do. I want you to watch this story unfold now. Take a look at this video. We see the story of Jesus going to the cross and everything seems to kind of be hand in hand. And then there's this one character that seems to interrupt the narrative. His name's Barabbas. We don't even know much about him except that he's a murderer, a leader of an insurrection, a rebel. And why he's even mentioned, sometimes I'm not so sure. It's like, what? Let's, this is about Jesus going to the cross. So in this moment, Pilate thinks, I hold the destinies of these two men in my hand. I know the Jews have a tradition that on a holy day, I will release one of the prisoners on death row. Pilate stands on this audacious stage who now presents Jesus, son of the living God, versus Barabbas, the thug and rebel. He says, all right, who do you want? This is blasphemy. This is, this has gone too far. There's no comparison. This is a rightful prisoner, a man who should be on death row. He's a rebel against Rome. He leads a rebellion. He murders people. He's a bad man. He's a thug and he's a crook. He deserves the chains and he deserves the crucifixion. Jesus, what has he done but heal, restore, deliver, set free, open blind eyes, open deaf ears, heal the lame and the leper? What, what has Jesus done? Who do you want? We want Barabbas. Yeah. Give us Barabbas. 
give us Barabbas. The Roman soldiers come up and they put the key in and they unlock Barabbas from his chains and shackles. And he walks down the platform, welcomed by all of his thug friends. Yeah, the people love me. Yeah, that's right. I don't even know who this Jesus guy is, but all I know is my people love me. There seems to be no conscience in Barabbas. There's no record of him turning to Jesus and saying, I owe you everything now, for you have set me free. No, I don't see any of that in Barabbas. And God knew that. Jesus stood there, silent for he knew the will of the Father. He said, it's fine, Father. Let him have Barabbas. For Jesus knew that the Father would have to treat Jesus like Barabbas so he could treat Barabbas like Jesus. Barabbas thought it was the people that set him free. No, 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 no. It was the love of the Heavenly Father. When I look at the story, I realize who Barabbas really is. That's me. That's you. That's us. And I felt I was reading this the other day, and I felt God speak to me. I love Barabbas. I love him. But God, he's bad, man. I love him. And I wanted him to go free. But didn't you know that he probably would have never acknowledged the freak? Yeah, but I love Barabbas. For while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God sent his son for Barabbas. Even the one he knew would walk away from Jesus and his free gift and never come back. He loves them. And the nerve, the call, the audacity of believers to think, I got saved by grace, but now that I'm in this deep, dark place of bondage, I better work hard to get myself out. What? That's the opposite of the gospel. Are you bound? Are you held under the power of this temptation, this sin? Do you feel like it's controlling you? What are you going to do? I'm going to shake myself free. Stop it! No, you won't! You're no match for the powers of hell and the urges of sin. You will not overcome it and you will never overcome it. You'll just be another statistic. There's no answer within yourself. Your own marriage, your own goodness, your own discipline, your own devotion will not save your marriage and will not save your kids. There's only one. And he's the one that took your place. He's the one that stood silently on the platform with Pilate and said, yes, let him have Barabbas. Take me. How many times have I stood on that platform with Pilate and Jesus and I'm the Barabbas and they start to take my chains off and I say, no, no, I deserve this. I deserve the guilt. I deserve the shame. I deserve the consequence. I deserve it. Jesus seems to look at me and say, no, son, let me have it. Let me have your sin. Let me have your pain. No, God, I did it to myself. I deserve it. My marriage won't make it. This is what I deserve. I deserve divorce. I deserve poverty. I deserve sickness. I deserve it all. No.
so ashamed. Give me your shame. But God, what if I do it again? I'll still be here. Oh God, I don't want to hurt you. I love you. I, I don't want to do this anymore. Give me your sins, son. This is all we got. It's all I got. It's all you got. We can play games. We can play church games. We can pretend like some people are better than others and that's why they're blessed. Or we can all come to the honest conclusion that it's God. And it's God alone. The greatest challenge is not your discipline, your devotion, your focus. Your greatest challenge is believing the gospel. Could it be that there's a God with a love so scandalous, so wide, so deep, so vast, so high, so expansive, so welcoming, so inclusive? Let me have your sin, son. Okay. When I give him my sin, I stand in this empty space of forgiveness and acceptance while Jesus walks off to the cross that I deserve. I see him, I see him walking to the post to be whipped. As I stand a free man, all the attention is turned now. And I feel the love of God saying, go son, live your life. I'll pay the price. Where did we get off? thinking that we were going to set ourselves free. It's still Jesus. It'll always be Jesus. It'll never stop being the power of Jesus. If his blood is sufficient for your salvation, his blood is sufficient to sustain you through every challenge and every sin and every temptation. Jesus is enough. When you first look at that story, you might think if you were just observing that the reality is that Jesus stayed on that stage because Pilate couldn't strategize well enough as a politician, or because the religious powerful were just that powerful, or because the crowd was just that fickle. But once you and I realized that the reason Jesus stayed on that stage was not because anyone made him stay, but because he knew that if he walked off that stage free, Barabbas would remain bound. And if he walked off that stage free, then you and I would remain bound along with Barabbas. And he stayed on that stage because he would take on our sin so that we would walk free, having done nothing to deserve it. This is the gospel. This is the good news. That's what gospel means, good news. The good news is you don't have to figure this out. You don't have to make this happen. You are bound. He is, he is here. He is now condemned. You are free. Listen to this. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God and be free. For many of us here, imagining that we would be compared to the likes of Barabbas is a shocking and difficult thought. One that perhaps even now we're sitting saying, yeah, nothing like that guy. 
And I get it. I, I get it. We live pretty decent lives. We have good cultural laws in place that keep us from acting completely crazy. We have some religious background that keep us in the good. And this is one of the enemy's strategies. Convince you that you're just good enough so that you don't need to stand on this stage and then you don't need Jesus to stand there with you. For some of you, you don't need any convincing to know that you're just like Barabbas. You've lived with these chains for long enough. You might even know Jesus, but the things you've done, the thoughts you've had, the actions you've affected, the people you've hurt, if we would know what you've done, we would know that even Jesus is not big enough to set you free. You deserve this stage, and you're just waiting for the, the ax to fall. Whatever comes your way, you deserve it. This is the other strategy of the enemy. Either he tells you that you are good enough that you don't need Jesus, or he tells you that you're bad enough that he can't set you free. And both those lies are equally horrid because they are opposing to the gospel. See, the gospel tells us a story. It tells us that in the very beginning of time, it reveals in Genesis that we were created as humanity for an extraordinary story, to be intimate with our creator in the, in the most wondrous way, with, without restriction, knowing his full freedom, his full light, his full love, his full intimacy. And then in that freedom that is affected by that intimate relationship, we would walk out to one another, to all of creation, and live out that freedom. And people would see it in us, and they would go, wow, and we would imitate the creator to one another. This was our created purpose to know God and to make him known without effort. And the enemy came into that garden and he tricked us as human beings and Adam and Eve and said, oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. God is trying to control you. He's trying to hold you back. His authority in your life, his story for you is your bondage. And there's a way out. There's a way to be free. If you eat of the forbidden fruit, you will know what God knows. You will be like God and you will have divinity. And you'll have a better story because you can write it yourself. God said you would die. That's a joke. You will not die. He's just trying to control you. We ate of the forbidden fruit, stepped into that insanity, and we discovered exactly what God told us we would. Not divinity, but sin and death. Death came to our story, and sin became the master over our souls. We were enslaved to sin. Solomon would later on write and say that we are like those chasing after the wind. We call it now cultural context, rats in a cage. We're just, we're just running the course, trying to pursue what's inside of us, the haunting that lives in us. We pursue two things simultaneously. We pursue our idols, anything that will fulfill the spaces in us that want to make us happy. Maybe the right relationship, maybe the right set of resources, maybe the right job, maybe, maybe the right circumstances, maybe just the, the right place to live, the right weather, the right boat, the right this, the right that. And when I, when I have everything in the right place, then I will be happy. We pursue those idols to come and rescue us, and they always seem to fall short in some way, shape, or form. And then we cannot love the way we ought to love because we need our idols. We don't love them. Or we pursue our divinity. You want to be the boss? Of course you do. So do I. You want anybody to rule over you? You don't like your teachers. You don't like your parents. You don't like your boss. You don't like the president. You don't like anybody. Anybody that's over you that tells you what to do, you don't like, nor do I. Why? Because we want to be divine. We want to write our own destinies. We don't even like God. And if we have to live under God, we try to figure out how to live just enough so he's happy but still have our own life because we see God as a bondage to our souls. This was what the enemy produced in us. And the gospel says, despite the fact that we abandoned God and his story for us, he never abandoned us and our story. And he came, he came with his unrelenting, scandalous love and entered into our story as the person of Jesus Christ. 
walked among us, lived the life we should have always lived, and then he stepped onto that stage where he had no reason to be condemned, and we had every reason to be condemned, and he stayed on that stage so that we could walk off free. This is the gospel. This is what the gospel means, that you and I come awake to this reality. See, that's why the scriptures are so clear that your freedom and my freedom will never be realized by a set of behaviors. Right behavior will never produce freedom for you or me. It will never make us right with God, ever, no matter how rightly we behave. Right belief will set us free. Not the kind of intellectual belief that you just believe something, but an awakening, a, a realization, a recognition. The moment that you and I say, I get it now. I see now. It is when that paradigm changes in your mind or mine, and it says, I, I totally missed that, but I get it now. And that paradigm lives on the stage of Barabbas. When we can see that we are in those shackles on that stage, condemned as a human race. And so each one of you along with me condemned equally, regardless of behavior. We will then know what an extraordinary thing it is that Jesus walked on the stage and stayed so we could walk free. And when we see that, when we know that, it is then that we are encountering what the scripture calls the gospel. You see for the first time your freedom laid before you, given to you. And when you walk off that stage, that walking off into freedom makes the space to create in you the devotion that you thought was a demand so you'd be right with God, but it is in fact a response to God and what he has done for you. See, unlike Barabbas, we don't have to walk off the stage and walk away saying, oh, my thug friends, I love them. We get to turn around because we have seen the truth and we get to say, I owe you everything now for you have set me free. Like the leper did, like the woman at the well did, like Peter did, like Zacchaeus did. All of their behaviors were the response to the incredible conversations they had with Jesus where he revealed to them who he was and showed them that he set them free. And in their freedom, they found their devotion. And we are called into a life of devotion, not as a demand, but as a gift. And in that life of devotion, as we learn what it means to know Jesus, what it means to trust Jesus, what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to submit to His authority and not our own, it is in that life that we begin to discover the full implications of the freedom that He's already given us. That we would not only be free for an eternity after we leave this planet, but we would live in that freedom while on this planet because we are walking in His ways and not our own. It is our response to his love. It is our freedom tangibly experienced on this planet after he has freed us for eternity from our condemnation. That's why Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You cannot condemn yourself. No one can condemn you because Jesus has already stood on the stage and taken your place already paid the price for you. This is our freedom. And out of our devotion, the life we live is under His direction, which leads to a life of mission on this planet, which leads to the life of true freedom. Jesus said, if you lose your life for my sake, you will find it, my friends. Follow me and you will see what life is. 
this is the message of Easter. This is what we celebrate, that Jesus faced the consequences of his condemnation on the cross and died the horrid death that he needed to die and then rose from the dead so that he could once and for all tell you and I, what I did on that stage, I can stand by because I have the power to raise after death. And that's what Easter's all about. So, may we walk out of here celebrating our freedom, walking more deeply into it, and worshiping God because we see clearly what He has done for us. Let's pray. God, thank You for Your incredible love for us, that You would stand on the stage of condemnation alongside Barabbas, a bad man, and instead of finding the way to get out of condemnation, you stood facing it squarely so that he could walk free. Remind us, God, that it is because you stayed on that stage that not only Barabbas, who walked free, but me and all those who find themselves in you. Awaken our hearts, God. Awaken our hearts so that we would see the freedom in which we can live and we would pursue that freedom, believing in you and following you in all that you require and ask of us, not because we must, but because we can.